It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to the All Sport 70 podcast. Uh, All Sport is 70 years old, and as part of the celebration, we've decided to take on the challenge of picking out some of the greatest cars from various categories uh, in motorsport history. Uh, and this episode is about the greatest touring car. And I'm pleased to say I've got two special guests uh, joining me. I'm Chief Editor of All Sport, Kevin Turner, and my first guest is somebody who has, well, driven, raced against, or commentated on many of the cars on this list. It's 1992 British Touring Car Champion, Tim Harvey. Welcome, Tim. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you very much for having me, Kevin. Uh, good to see you. Good to see Marcus covering touring cars again this year. Yes, that brings me to our second guest, Marcus Simmons. And as Tim hinted there, <laughs> Marcus is covering British Touring Cars again this year, having originally done it back in the 1990s. So, uh, Marcus, your, your British Touring Car knowledge is, uh, is nice and broad as well. Um, yeah, quite, quite broad uh, if you talk about... Um, uh, span of years but probably a little bit dipping in some cases and um, I did mention to Tim uh, the other day when we were talking on the phone uh, that uh, the Peugeot 406 probably hasn't made this list and uh, <laughs> that's, that's really where I got to know Tim in the first place so uh, so usually he wasn't quite as cheerful um, as we normally know <laughs> him. But, uh, <laughs> the 406 is not on the list although of course Laura Aiello did win in, in Germany with it so uh, we are trying to go international here rather than just British Touring Car, but obviously we'll have, a, I guess, a little bit of a bias towards, towards the BTCC. Um, so um, the main criteria we're going to be looking at is uh, how successful the cars were, how much they changed the game, did they bring in an innovation that uh, everyone else had to follow, uh, and um, the sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, which is a fever rating, which basically is how much do we like that car? Was it cool to watch going out on its own? So um, the very first one is a bit of a, a bit of a fan favourite, really. Uh, it's the Mini, uh, which uh, 
scored uh, British Touring Car titles uh, with John Whitmore, John Love, Alec Paul and Richard Longman. Also won European Touring Car Championship. Least famously of all, actually swept the board at Bathurst in 1966, which I suspect most people don't remember, but they completely clobbered everyone that year. So, uh, so Tim, what do, you, what do you reckon about this? Uh, this is a sort of kicked off the front wheel drive revolution, really, which has become the standard for, for most touring cars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the Mini was a very adaptable car. Let's not forget it won the Monte Carlo Rally. It was successful in circuit racing and continues to be so and provide great entertainment. As anyone who saw the Mini Challenge races from brands will have uh, uh, agreed. Yeah, a fantastic, basically a, a, a unique and perfect design concept um, from Alec Isignosis in the first place. And, you know, it proved very adaptable, successful, easy to run car. I've never raced one. I've driven plenty of mini minis and mini coopers. My parents used to autocross minis, hill climb minis, you name it. So it was part of my growing up. I suppose as a uh, you know, judging by our levels of how we're changing things, yes, it was cool. Yes, it was a game changer, and it had a lot of success. So you're right to have it on li- this list. I think my—I uh, I don't know how you feel about this, Marcus, but I was kind of considered the mini as almost like a Formula Ford of touring cars in the sense that I wouldn't particularly go and watch one going round on its own. But when you've got a pack of them slipstreaming and passing, it's it sort of it, you know, it creates fantastic racing. Tim mentioned the mini Melia races that we were all. Um the BTCC paddock were hanging onto the fence at the at the back of the paddock watching them going along the straight from Graham Hill Bend to Surtees um, a couple of weeks ago at the touring car meeting and it was just fantastic entertainment um, now in a in a touring car context um, yeah they the the 1960s minis were they were very much a, a, a similar deal and um, what always amazes me is that um, when uh, I came to covering touring cars originally in the 1990s. I got to know uh, Alec Poole and um, Steve Neal, and uh, I was always absolutely flabbergasted that either of them could have ever got themselves into a Mini, because they're both very big blokes. <laughs> but, um, um, but we also have to remember the longevity as well. So there was, um, yeah, we talk about the, the, the classic Mini, if you like, um, but there was, you also mentioned Richard Longman winning championships, and that was the 1275 GT in the late 1970s. So that's, that's over a decade on from from when it first appeared, and um, it, it was the it was the small class, the up to thirteen hundred cc class, and he was up against Alpha Suds and Hillman Avengers and things like that. But uh, um, yeah, definitely hugely successful car, um, if not the most exciting in its own right to watch. Yeah. Now the other the other issue I have, and this will come up a few times on this list with the mini. Is is the idiosyncratic class system that existed in touring cars, British touring cars in particular, before the two liter era, and that's how it won its championships. Although it did win ten races outright, they were all in the days when they separated the classes out. So it, it never actually, despite its its status as a giant killer, it didn't actually ever beat the bigger stuff for an overall victory in the BTCC. Um, and I think for me that personally that counts against it slightly in terms of this this debate so um, Tim do you think we should be putting the mini through uh, to the end of this debate or or can we sort of lose it now with an honourable mention? I think that's a difficult one because at the end of the day you know motor racing in those days was a class structure and it was as successful as it could be in its class 
you can't ask for really any more than that. And the fact that it did do giant killing performances on occasions um, actually only enhances its, its credibility, I suppose. Um, you know, if you were only to take race winning cars, that isn't always you know, the best thing. But I don't know. I, there's such a good list of cars. Do we put it? How many are we going to have in our final shortlist? Well, I think we've got sort of 10 to 12 to discuss. And I reckon if we sort of take maybe four to five through to the final to, to really debate about at the end. But if it's six, that's not a disaster. I think if we sort of halve them as we go. Okay, well, I'd put it at the bottom of your potential list to go through then. Okay, fair enough. We can immediately move on to another car that won the, uh, won the championship as a result of a, a class uh, system. But in fairness, did also win races outright uh, uh, in British touring cars. Uh, it's the Ford Lotus Cortina, which is another iconic car, rear wheel drive, so the, re- the, the driven wheels are in the right place as far as I'm, uh, I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, so, um, Marcus, this, this one, obviously hugely successful in historic racing now, but really there was one driver in particular that it's associated with, certainly in Britain anyway. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, obviously, whenever anyone mentions Jim Clark, they mention his 1964 British Saloon Car Championship um, success. Um, uh, um, uh, to me, uh, the, the Lotus Cortina um, was a little bit before my time. Um, and uh, it's... but. Uh, but it's a car I got to know through watching it in historic racing. Um, just one one thing I would say about it is um, just the the white the white bodywork with the green stripe just looks so elegant um, on this on this fish tailing machine uh, with the with the front wheels lifting and uh, and to me that that is uh, I, the the word iconic I think is uh, quite often overused but uh, that is an iconic image of 1960s touring car racing and uh, and it was um, successful as well um, far beyond these shores as well wasn't it because um, it had a lot of success in um, in European racing so um, so that that was a that was a great that was a great car for the time um, but like the mini for me it's not going to quite make it into my top four or five. What about you Tim have you got any any experience with uh, with the Cortina? Yeah, um, some experience. I haven't raced one of the, I'll call them uh, modern um, Lotus Cortinas, um, unlike a lot of my touring car counterparts. But uh, again, it was, a, it was a car that I had a lot of exposure with growing up. Um, again, my parents used to, to race and autocross and use Lotus Cortinas. It was a family uh, family sort of school run car as well um but yeah i mean in terms of coolness which is a factor this is a really cool car you know the and in much in terms of how much it changed the game yes you know the amalgamation of um the Ford cortina colin chapman lotus twin cam engine it was that was a, a really a game changer special thing um, and it had an undoubted level of success. I'd put it above the Mini. I would agree with that. Um, I kind of think of it as the first Super Saloon, really, although I suppose Jaguar fans might might argue that the Mark II with effectively an X, the XK D-type engine in it would have been a, a pretty Super Saloon as well. But, of course, the Cortina did uh, help finish the Jaguar domination of the early days of the British Saloon Car Championship. Um, and, yeah, the European touring car success with John Whitmore in 1965 was scored against pretty heavy alpha male opposition so and also a cool livery there i always rather like the red and gold of the alan man uh, colors as well so um 
yes, a worthy, uh, definitely a worthy candidate for this list. But I think I agree, it probably won't go through. I think the fact that it took Jim Clark, Jim Clark won all of its races in the British Saloon Car Championship, I think probably tells you something about the driver as well as the car. So um, we're going to move on from the Cortina um, to something completely different. Um, now, could have, there are a number of V8 Yank tanks that could have made this list. The Ford Galaxy, which is well well named, I would say, absolutely enormous. Always feel very sorry for mini drivers when they're in historic races going up against it. Um, but actually, although it was the car that ended the Jaguar domination, brought V8s in, it didn't last in championship very, very long. The Ford Mustang took over, then the Ford Falcon. So they were all cars that won a lot. But the one I'm going to go for here is the Chevrolet Camaro. Um, like the Mustang, also won in Trans Am. Uh, Mark Donahue, the Penske Run car, was successful in the late 60s. And then into the 70s, the Camaro really became the car to have in the British Saloon Car Championship. It actually only won one championship in 1973 with Frank Gardner, but it took 53 outright wins in the British Saloon Car Championship, which is, uh, I think, the second most of all the cars we're going to talk about on this on this list. So... What do you think, think, Tim? I know you're a fan of big, powerful cars. This Camaro is a bit more like it, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely love the car. And the results are obviously uh, very impressive. The only thing, caveat, I would say against that is, you know, it was a hammer to crack a nut. And what was the, what was the competition when it was winning 53 races? Because, you know, it, it really was head and shoulders above everything else at the time. Um, and that's the only question mark I have over it. As a car, absolutely fantastic. You know, brute force, uh, plenty of power. The fact that it could win on UK circuits, with, which are predominantly quite tight, as opposed to the faster American circuits, you know, it was only to its credit, really. Yeah, I spoke to Stuart Graham about it a couple of years ago. He was obviously one of the front runners at the time. And he said, actually, it, it, it's got a reputation now as obviously being a big powerhouse, which obviously it did have. Um, but he said, actually, it handled. They got it handling quite well as well. He said it was it was it was fully capable of of, of taking on any of the nimbler stuff, uh, which kind of backs up your point. Really, the only thing I think they had to worry about was making sure that they looked after tyres and brakes, uh, because if you pressed on right from the start, you didn't have either of those things by the end. <laughs> but um, but Marcus, it obviously it, it ticks the spectacular box. Do you think that it maybe doesn't tick the game changer box? given that it ended up getting banned and that, that the whole V8 thing kind of ended with it in 1975. Yeah, the, the, first, um, the first ever British saloon car race I saw when I was six years old in 1973, and it was Frank Gardner leading all the way in his Chevrolet Camaro, um, being pursued by Brian Muir's BMW CSL and Dave Matthews in a Cologne Capri. Um, and then the rest of the massive field were lapped about seemed to be lapped about three times so so we're talking about an an era of um touring car racing which was phenomenally uh uncompetitive compared to what we know now although with the proviso that the others were battling for class wins um so um and that was the last year of the old group two rules and uh, because group two was getting very expensive um they they introduced um, a after a lot of argument over the winter of 73 74 um, they introduced a, a variation on production saloon racing um, which at that time was called group one and the new uh, British saloon car formula was was nicknamed group one and a half so uh, so you had these 
more production-based cars running on slick tyres with um, a few modifications allowed. And then, and over the next couple of years, that was completely dominated by the Camaros. Um, but really, it was just a case of who out of Stuart Graham or Richard Lloyd would, would win the race. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I remember races uh, in those days where there would be about five Camaros at the front and then you drop down the next class and it would be the Capris and Opal Commodores battling it out. So, so again, it wasn't tremendously competitive at the front. Um, and uh, the, the race, if, if Stuart Graham or Richard Lloyd didn't last the distance, then it was usually uh, not very exciting to watch either. So, um, so a great car. And, and um, you, have to, uh, you have to give the Camaro credit for being uh, so good that it was banned or written out of the regulations when they imposed an a, a upper capacity limit for 1976. Um, but it didn't, it didn't produce the greatest era of touring car racing, I don't think. No, I think it sounds like we're fairly happy to, to lose the Camaro at this point. Um, but the next car on the list, which took over from the Camaro when they, they, they changed those regulations, as Marcus was talking about, I think is one we will probably will uh, put through. Certainly a strong candidate. It's the Ford Capri. It has more British touring car wins on the list than any other car with 61. Um, prior to that, of course, it was, uh, it was very successful in European touring car competition as well. Won the Spa 24 Hours three times, so it's it's got a bit more international success than the Camaro as well, um, and it's another real fan favourite, the the Ford Capri. So, what do you, what do you think, Tim? What do you think the think the Capri is a strong candidate for this one? Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, it was a cool car. It was um, you know one of the it was in a way. It, apart from the Mini, it, the Capri was a game changer because, of course, it was the car of the people. It was a cool car on the roads. Lots of people owned them. So that connection then with the racing, you know, w was a very strong one. And that's been a part of touring cars throughout the ages, the connection between people who drive on the road and seeing those cars race. Yes, of course, it applied to the Mini. Didn't really apply to the Lotus Cortina, although there were lots of Cortinas, and certainly didn't apply to the Camaro because there weren't lots of people here racing them. But the Capri had that connection. And it was just the perfect blend of power, balance, handling. It was a fantastic car. And um, obviously my old Group C um, boss, Gordon Spice, had considerable success with them. It's a cool car. It really is a fabulous car. And it was just a perfect car of its era, but also faced a lot of competition and won in all kinds of races everywhere. So a very good candidate. Yeah, I remember speaking to Gordon about it. And he rather, I mean, he's very, uh, he, he's not got a big ego, is he? He's quite happy to sort of talk about the team and, and, and the car being excellent. But he called it idiot proof. He said, you could drive it as sideways as you like as you liked, um, but the quickest way was to keep it neat and tidy as it, as it normally is. But um, of course he was denied winning the championship by that very class structure. I think he won the class title about six times, uh, but never actually won the overall all championship. But there were some fantastic fights with, with Andy Rouse, of course, up and coming once he got out of the Triumph Dolomites in the Capris. And as you say, Tim, fighting, fighting the Rovers when they came in, um, when that, when they came in later, so so what do you think, Marcus? Are you happy to put the Capri through as well, given its international success and the, the racing it had in Britain? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, um, yeah, when when the Capri, um, when the Capri became the car to have in the top class, um, these races were races you could not miss. Uh, they were they were absolutely superb. You had you know 
Gordon Spice, who Tim mentioned, um, Chris Craft, Andy Rouse, Jeff Allen, um, Colin Vanderveld, Stuart Graham, Tom Walkinshaw as well uh, in a Capri, although he then uh, switched to the BMW. Um, and um, just absolutely superb racing, uh, cars oversteering around, uh, a lot of a lot of contact. Um, but um, the, yeah, these these were absolutely um, fantastic races. And um, yeah, it was only when the uh, the Rover came along in um, in the early 1980s that the Capri really um, began to fall off its perch at the at the top of the tree. And um, also got a soft spot for the Capri because my dad had a 1600cc automatic and um, and he used to, uh, he basically taught me to drive in it when I was nine years old. I had full control of the steering wheel and pedals um, and I just used to sit on his lap so that I could reach them. <laughs> so the car of your dreams, Marcus, would be a Capri 280 Brooklands, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't buy a 1600 automatic now, but uh, it did make me think that I was Gordon Spice when I was uh, driving along age nine. <laughs> and it's it's a car that's still liked. Obviously, it's 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 one of the popular cars in the Jerry Marshall Trophy, which I know um, Tim's competed in a few times. I remember speaking to Rob Huff about it, and he said it's just such a wonderfully balanced car. That exactly that thing that Tim said, which is enough power to be interesting, but not not overpowered. Just a really nice balanced chassis. So I think the Capri definitely has to go through to our final debate. Um, uh, and the next car I want to talk about is another car. Well, I think it's one of Tim's favourite, close to his heart. How he's touring car career began although it was the end of the car's career when you got hold of it uh, tim it's the rover sd1 both in its three and a half v8 and then the test forms won 39 british touring car races and um, btcc crown 1984 with andy rouse should have won in 83 as well but steve soper got got thrown out for twi irregularities which obviously never happened before or after um and had success elsewhere in uh, in Europe and, and Germany. So Tim, tell us about the, the, the Rover. I know it's a bit of a favorite of yours. Yeah, it is, you know, from a driving point of view, in a similar way to the Capri, this was a, a big, cuddly, friendly giant of a car um, with a great sounding, powerful engine, fabulous chassis balance. Although it was a big car, it re you could really drive it on or over the limit without it having any nasty vices and doing anything awkward. It was a good car in the wet, it really was a great car. Um, you know, I came in on the end of the SD1's um, lifeline in 87, my first year in touring cars. By that stage, it, you know, it already had a long career, you know, champion with Andy Rouse in 84. It was that his exact car that I used, albeit with a TWR engine. Um, and, you know, the fact it was still competitive at the end of that period in 87, you know, we were, we were racing against the first of the um, turbo cars, the Ford Mercure, stuff like that. And it was still competitive. Well, we won the class that year. So it had, it had um, a very long life against a lot of opposition, won a lot of races. How cool it was, I don't know. I'm a little biased on that. I, th I still think they're quite cool cars. And the fact that we, we, we like them and they've appreciated in value now probably says they were quite cool cars. What, what, what do you think, Marcus? I mean, obviously, as well as, uh, as Britain, uh, as, as Tim said, it had a lot of opposition in Europe as well against, you know, Volvo, BMW. Um, you know, it's right in the mix of when Group A was getting, you know, serious with some proper teams, proper drivers. Where, where do you think the Rover slots in on the cool factor? I completely agree with you with the with the overall success. Uh, you know, it was it was part of the absolute peak of the European Touring Car Championship in the 
in the mid 80s. Um, it even won a DTM title as well in the very early days of, of that series and had the longevity as well. But there's a couple of things that count against it in, in my mind. One of those is that I've talked about the peak of the European Touring Car Championship, but that coincided with the absolute nadir of the British Touring Car Championship in the, in the mid 80s when the, the grids were very small. And um, by the time Tim came in in 87, they were beginning to... Uh, to, to get a lot better again. Um, but um, <clears throat> around the, the 84, 85, 86 era, it was, um, uh, I've, I made reference of the Capri era being one where you could not afford to miss the race. Um, well, there were a lot of mid 80s British touring car races that um, you wouldn't have missed anything if you, if you hadn't have watched them. So, um, and, and the other thing uh, that counts against it to me is that it just seemed to be the, uh, the epitome of the brown suited company director's car of the of the 1980s <laughs> in in the way that the capri wasn't well i think i think if we're you know if the capri is the benchmark i think we will the, the rover probably falls at this particular hurdle um, but the next two candidates are, i personally think are very strong i don't know whether we want to discuss them together um tim's tim's raced both of them to me they're both iconic cars from group a so the first is the bmw m3 now i do think about making the m3 a very broad term but that just becomes ridiculous because then you're including gt cars and, and dtm cars of, of, of recent times which are all a bit uh, silhouette like so I've, I've basically gone for the e30 m3 the original m3 i think that's the one we think is of the proper m3 which is no disrespect to the many excellent cars that have come since then. It won championships in the DTM, it won the World Touring Car Championship, European Touring Car Championship, British Touring Car Championship in 88 with Frank Sydney, 91 with Will Hoy, four Spa 24-hour victories. Uh, Jim Richards won in Australia with it. Um, Tim, I, it's got to be a strong candidate, hasn't it? Oh, huge. By far and away, the strongest candidate we've had so far for all of its on-track success in its very many different guises, whether it's endurance racing, sprint racing, DTM in 2.3 or 2.5 litre, the BTCC in, in a paltry two litre form. Um, it had success absolutely everywhere. And, you know, you can't deny that. As a car, it was packaged absolutely brilliantly. Fabulous uh, motorsport engine, four-cylinder screamer engine. Um, and it was an absolute joy to drive. I jumped in my old E30 Labatt's car, Brands Hatch, for a feature last year with Colin Turkington on a car swap. And immediately I was back in that zone of, you know, and Colin loved it as well because you have to grab hold of it and, and it's a real driver's car. Um, so for me, it, it's an absolute classic and um, certainly one of my top three ever touring cars. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you were to ask someone to draw or come up with, uh, you know, the archetypal touring car, the three box shape rear wheel drive has some fantastic liveries as well, didn't it? I mean, your, your Labatt's car looked, looked pretty, pretty amazing, but it had lots of different cool liveries. I mean, the JPS car that raced in Australia looks superb as well. What do you think, Marcus? Are you as much of a fan of the M3 as, as, as we are? Um, well, I can't be as much of a fan of it as Tim because because uh, I've never raced one. But <laughs> but um, yeah, when when the BMW M3 came out, it was it was like a racing car on the road. So so the and the racing versions uh, were obviously even better. Um, and um, it just 
it just completely moved the goalposts, didn't it? Um, hugely successful um, all over all over the world. And um, funnily enough, I don't think in in Britain it it had as much in a, of an effect on the touring car landscape as it did um, in Germany and on the continent. Um, but but still, you know, hugely influential car. Um, and you know, I remember. It, going to a strict British touring car championship context uh, there was the occasional race where a well-driven M3 and I think we're talking about James Weaver possibly could beat all the RS 500s um, on it on its day um, in the in, in the very early days I stand to be corrected on that but um, that was a um, fantastic car and, and also uh, was pretty much one of the bedrock cars for the formation of what what became the super touring rules uh, which came in in 1990 and uh, yeah it was it was in 2.3 litre form in in the late 80s in the group a days um yeah, just um quick quick change to two litre for super touring and and instantly you had the go-to customer car for people to um to run and uh, you you had the in the early days of super touring you had the the Pro Drive factory BMW M3s, and you had the um, the Vic Lee cars as well. But don't forget, there were quite a few privateers on the grid as well, and that was hugely important for Super Touring to to get up and running and and uh, off to a successful start. Yeah, because Matt Neal even started his very first few races were in an E30 M3 as well. So um, yeah, I think that the M3 has to go through partly because actually the BMWs that we haven't included in this list. The three-liter CSL from the seventies, which I really wanted to put in because I think that bewinged wonder is fabulous, uh, and the other is the six-three-five CSI. Um, and really, the only reason they're not in this list probably is I just thought the M3 was such a, a, a game-changer, legendary car. It kind of it, it beat both of them and therefore would make it onto the list. So the M3 definitely goes through, um, and the car that maybe one of the few cars that could go up against it, which was its main rival in some respects in the period if you've got bmw efficiency good handling on the one side you have forward rs 500 550 brake horsepower sledgehammer on the other side um, which in the early days of the turbo forge the bmw could actually still beat it on certainly in the european world touring car championships once the rs 500 was fully sorted uh, a well-driven one uh, you know would, would disappear down the road from a from an m3 um, and I know that Tim, this is the RS five hundred is is another one of your favourite cars. So perhaps you can you can tell us where it scores against the M three and where it perhaps doesn't do so well. Power, that's where it scores. <laughs> <laughs> five hundred and sixty horsepower. You know, it's, there's no, there's no substitute for horsepower, as we say. Um, but you know, this was this was. First and foremost, an iconic, cool car. You know, every kid, every young, um, successful guy wanted to have a three-door white Cosworth on the road with a whale tail. It was a very cool car. Um, and as far as racing was concerned, yeah, worldwide success. Um, a car that was limited purely and simply by driver ability and tyre life. And, but apart from that, it had it all. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, it was a victim of its own success because it just became the ultimate um, touring car of its generation, it, despite a lot of opposition. 
and, and one across the world. Uh, but it was also a car that customers, of course, could run successfully. Many tuners, builders, people could run these cars, and there were so many of them around the world racing. Mm. And just, just to, to back up some of what Tim's saying in terms of its success, 40 British touring car wins between the end of 87 and the end of 1990, when the car was basically effectively outlawed, um, it was unbeaten. Uh, did actually win the 1990 British Touring Car Championship with Rob Gravett. We won't talk about Yokohama tyres at this point. Um, Spa 24-hour victory, manufacturers title in the European Touring Cars, DTM success, um, Oz Tintops, Macau. So like, like the M3, uh, it's got that worldwide success. And for me, uh, although I'm a huge BMW fan, the RS500, I would watch one of those being driven properly, going around the circuit on its own. It ticks that box even before you get into the racing uh but what do you think marcus yeah well there's <clears throat> there's the famous story isn't there um of uh when roberto moreno was in the in the middle of his 1988 formula 3000 championship winning year and he was testing at silverstone and um he passed a an rs 500 going into beckett's and uh thought right that that's that car dealt with and then he got onto the hangar straight Suddenly, the RS five hundred came tonking past him again. <laughs> oh, that's a true story as well. <laughs> um, but, um, we had the same situation at uh, Birmingham, didn't they? Where they clocked the they set the speed trap up uh, and clocked the Sierras at faster than the Formula three thousand cars. <laughs> yeah, um, if, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I mean, um, right, around Birmingham, they must have been there, but uh, the. the the great thing, as well as the amount of power, is the fact that in those days, the um, touring cars didn't have control tyres. None of the tyre companies uh, seemed to be able to provide a tyre that would last on the uh, RS500 beyond a few laps. So uh, it was like um, touring cars on Pirellis, really. So um, the... Uh, so Which I think Andy Rouse was at one time, wasn't he? <laughs> um, so um, wildly powerful cars with um, with no grip whatsoever, and and actually um, quite a reasonable spread of driving ability as well in those days in the uh, in the British Touring Car Championship. Um, so you had uh, so you had the, the the pros at the front of the field, but also yeah, um, by 1989 there were about 20 RS500s on the grid and, and some of them were just um, were being driven by uh, by by amateur amateur drivers who weren't career guys at all um, some of them were pretty good um, but uh, but you had that ability and that and that spread and that's what made it um, a really appealing uh, era of touring car racing even if it was effectively a one make touring car racing um, by the time the uh, the super touring rules were brought in in 1990. Well, there's absolutely no way the RS500 isn't going through to the final, so uh, through it goes. And before we move on to the, the two-litre era, an honourable mention to uh, arguably the ultimate Group A touring car, although I kind of I think of it almost as more of a, a GT car, really, the Nissan Skyline R32, which we never saw over here in the British Touring Car Championship, but did wipe the floor with the RS500s in Australia, uh, and carried on racing in Japan, but uh, perhaps doesn't have the worldwide success. And as I say, I think you're borderline GT racing uh, with that car. It wasn't as spectacular because it had four-wheel drive, so it could actually use its 500 and whatever brake horsepower. Um, 
But yeah, so moving on to the two litre, I think the, the first car to challenge BMW uh, before the RS 500s had even gone um, was the was the Vauxhall Cavalier. Um, back to front wheel drive again, but it uh, won 19 British touring car races. Um, did ultimately win the, the championship outright in 1995 against all that manufacturer opposition right at the height of super touring. Did beat BMW to the manufacturer's championship in 1992, which means Tim's performance to win the driver's championship must have been particularly special. He must have had quite a hopeless teammate uh, in 1992, Tim, eh? uh, and uh, yeah, so where, where do we, you, you'd have raced against the Cavalier, Tim? What, how do you how do you rate it? Um, well, obviously, you know, it's very hard for me to say anything positive about a Vauxhall Cavalier, really, because it's, it's just a, a reps car, isn't it? Uh, masquerading as a race car. Um, but no, in all honesty, look, you can't deny the success. It was a very successful car. Um, in various years, it, it was a dominant car. You know, 95, it was by far and away the best car. Um, but it had a long, successful career, largely, obviously, with John Cleland at the, at the helm, but David Leslie as well. It was a very successful car. But for me, it didn't have any wow factor or cool factor whatsoever. Um, there was nothing like about that about it. And although it had some international success, predominantly its success was in the UK. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it deserves some credit for the being one of the first uh, manufacturers to go up against the BMW and make that two-litre era, you know, kick, help kickstart that. Obviously, John Cleland getting stuck in to the real drive cars. But yeah, it, it's never really done it for me either. Uh, Marcus, is it, is it exciting enough? I know, obviously, you're a super touring fan, as we all are but that's probably not the car to pick out of that era. What I actually really like is that uh, the most anonymous car won the championship in 1995, which was probably the peak of manufacturer participation um, and driven by a car dealer. <laughs> and what's more, um, it was a Volvo car dealer, <laughs> John Cleland. Um, but uh, yeah, I... I um, I remember that um, before that 1995 season, uh, with, and we yeah, we have to credit Ray Malek's um, organisation with um, you know, played a very heavy role in that championship and um, and the work David Leslie had done um, on earlier iterations of the Cavalier as well was hugely important in that. But um, Cleland knew the first time he drove the 95 Cavalier that. It was an enormous step forward. Couldn't believe how good it was, and uh, and there you go. They uh, they cleaned up against some really really serious opposition, um, which um, which might have serious glamour opposition. You know, with um, you know, international driver lineups, ex Grand Prix drivers, um, you know, and uh, it was yeah, it was a fantastic performance. But the car just doesn't excite me. No, I would agree with that. I think the Cavalier has had its honourable mention. We now move on. Of course, the, the 95 car was bewinged. And the reason that it was bewinged is because the year before, Alfa Romeo had rocked up with the 155 with uh, splitters and diffusers and rear wings and things, uh, uh, which the cars hadn't had previously. So the, the 155 is on this list because it was a game changer. I also couldn't decide whether it was being a bit cheeky to include it because of... Uh, Nicola Larini's 1993 DTM success because I suspect the only similarities between the DTM Alpha 155 and the BTCC one was the badge. Uh, what do you think, Marcus? Do you think they should be included together or are they just two separate? 
of the drivers whose names end with Eni as well. <laughs> yeah, yes. um, it was, I, I just mentioned the, the glamour opposition uh, and it, it really, it, it wasn't just the car when Alfa Romeo came over with the 155 in 1994, but it was just, it was just that the Alfa course team seemed so exotic in their uh, old school blue overalls um and just phenomenally italian um gabrielli gabrielli tarquini became um an instant crowd favorite in the uk because he's just such a lovely chap and uh really uh really good with the media and the fans um and um the car yeah the, <clears throat> the question in the early days was whether it was legal wasn't it and um to the extent that I think Andy Rouse went out and bought an Alfa Romeo 155 from a dealership to see whether they really did have those bits of aero in the in the boot of the car so that you could clip them on if you wanted to. Um, and uh, although it's it's period in super touring form, its period of success was very limited. Um, it was uh, I would say very much what we would call a game changer. So on that score, um, I would I would say it's probably uh possibly the most significant super touring car of them all oh and now tim you were obviously on the receiving end of that when alfa Mayo arrived did it did it feel like that bigger change and like all oh, right okay this is things are going to be different from now on it did you know the other element of their involvement was the financial um side of things because they were the first team to really up the ante financially um, and yes, whilst it was massively exciting to have this factory team arrive in Britain, come to every race with uh, all their kit and fabulous coffee making machines. And uh, it, it was wildly exciting, but it upped the ante financially. And, and that actually is significant because that was the start of the money race. That was where the money race started because every other manufacturer said, uh, or teams said to manufacturers, if you want to be Alfa Romeo, this is what you've got to spend. And that's where things started to change. But if we just get back to the car, the car was fantastic. Um, it was probably a bit too narrow to be the ideal touring car, um, but it was brilliantly driven by Tarquini. Um, it was a game changer, obviously, with the aero, but there was a lot more in that car. The differentials, the, the engine, everything about it was pure factory um so it it was a it was an incredibly cool gay changing winning car um you can't compare it with the dtm version that was four-wheel drive v6 totally different animal um but you know from the uk's point of view that was a special car no question so before we put the alpha through to the final i want to throw the the next sort of foreign invader into the mix uh which is the audi a4 quattro so probably not as cool. I mean, as the Alpha, can't, can't say that. But it did have a wider success um, because as well as winning the British Touring Car Championship in 1996, it won two titles with Brad Jones in Australia uh, and was the, uh, did win the World Touring Car Cup in 1995. So probably a, a, a broader level of success over a longer period of time. You could say, was that just down to the four-wheel drive? maybe a bit harsh so how does the Audi Tim back to you how does the Audi stack up against the Alpha do you think in in this debate in terms of in terms of success in terms of um 
changing the game with four-wheel drive, I would actually say it was a greater achievement than the Alpha. Um, and it came up subsequent to the Alpha where the standards had already been raised year on year. Uh, but we, we never imagined a four-wheel drive two-litre car would work in the UK. Um, and, and Audi pulled it off and Frank Beeler pulled it off. Um, unfortunately, uh, being Audi, being German, it lacked the coolness of, of the Alfa Romeo. Um, but in terms of its ability, its success, I would put it above the Alfa. It was a brilliant car. What do you think, Marcus? Because obviously it did score more success, um, but it's a game changer. Obviously, four-wheel drive, you know, if you look at a modern touring car now, it does have wings. It doesn't have four-wheel drive, very kind of superficial viewing of it. But but what, but what do you think? I'm, I'm kind of torn on these two. So what do you, what yeah. do you think? And Tim, Tim's got a point about um, the pe- people didn't imagine it would work on the British circuits. What we have to remember is that the um, the cars would be homologated um, over each winter, um, and um, they were homologated for worldwide competitions. So, um, so with Audi, um, the 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 focus would have been on success in. Germany and on the continental tracks, which were a lot more stop-start than the fast-flowing countryside British circuits we've got. So, so the fact that they managed to get it working on our tracks as well was um, was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and and actually, the year Frank Beeler won the British Touring Car Championship in 1996, I'm I'm pretty sure that the the, um, the seven main national super touring championships around the world were all won by the Audi A4 Quattro which is just a phenomenal record. And the other thing that potentially played into their hands was that they were on Dunlop tyres and um, nearly all the other um, super touring manufacturers were using Michelin. So, um, so you never quite knew how much was the four-wheel drive, how much was the car, how much was the tyre. Um, but as Ferrari showed in the Bridgestone era in Formula One, if you're the only... Uh, customer on a particular tyre, then you can kind of drive the development um, in your direction. So um, it was a it was a fantastic car, um, hugely successful, far more so than the Alpha One Five Five. But for me, actually, not quite as exciting. So I would just um, I, I would uh, I would agree that it was probably a more probably a more successful. Well, it was a more successful touring car, but. Uh, as far as favourites are concerned, I'd put the Alpha through and not the Audi. Yeah, if, I can, if I can just come back, well, I mean, what I would say is I don't, I don't believe it was the tyre. The car had a much better ability in terms of um, braking, in terms of traction, um, because technology was was not limited, but it wasn't. We didn't know then what we know now. So front-wheel drive cars always had understeer, always had traction problems. The, the Audi could use all of its power all of the time. It wasn't the tyre, it was just it, it had the four-wheel drive system, which also made it unbeatable in the wet. Um, so, and, and the fact that we didn't adopt four-wheel drive as, a, as a, an ongoing platform for touring cars, it probably doesn't make it a game changer because the game didn't stay that way. It was a, it was a bit of a one-off. So I agree with Marcus. It was of its time, but probably not as much as a, a, of a cool or a game changer as the Alfa Romeo. Oh, so is the Alfa, is the Alfa the one we put, uh, put through then? It's, it, it's just because it was so bad in 95 
you know, if Derek Warwick were here, he'd, I'm sure he'd be screaming at to, to get rid of the alpha as soon as possible. Uh, I'm not saying that, that should necessarily be a criteria, but uh, I, I feel like the Audi was a better touring car. Whether that means it's a greater one, of course, is is open is open for debate. Uh, I think I'm going to put the Audi through on the basis that that, that the Quattro and four-wheel drive, you know, there are other Audis from the DTM that, that that it, it kind of is representing them as well. And the Alpha's success was so short-lived, but I, I accept that the Alpha is definitely the cooler car. I don't think, I think we're unanimous on that. Um, but we've got another super touring uh, duel coming up. So what is the ultimate super touring uh, touring car, 2D tour at the end of the 90s? Is it the Nissan Primera or the Ford Mondeo? So... Uh, both both high level success at the end of the era. Laurent Aiello winning in nineteen ninety nine. Anthony perhaps arguably should have won in nineteen ninety eight had there not been some reliability issues. Um, the Ford Mondeo winning with um, with Alain Menu in two thousands. Uh, what do you think, Tim? Which one of those would you? I mean, obviously the Mondeo was was kind of the. the I would the say without a doubt. I would say without a doubt the Nissan. Because the Nissan was successful everywhere with lots of different um, uh, drivers and teams. The real success after years and years and years with the Mondeo only came with the huge budget um, pro drive car. Uh, and that, that was its only success. So although it represents the zenith of two litre touring cars, you know, for me, it was a one off. So I would have no hesitation saying the Nissan was the more successful, better car. Do you agree with that, Marcus? That means you have to vote against an Alain Menu car. Um, I, I completely agree, actually. Um, <laughs> I, um, for me, the, uh, the, as soon as, um, you know, we've talked about Ray Malek's team with the Cavalier, but they took over the, Nissan project in 1997 and from then it was just a a, a gradual uh, gradual increase to just excellence and and that car by 1999 well arguably by late 1980 by late 1998 was the car to have um, and then um, ILA and David Leslie dominated the championship finished one two um, the other thing with the uh, pro drive mondeos in 2000 um was that by 2000 um ford were one of only three manufacturers left in the championship um so the only opposition they had uh was the honda um and that program was a bit a bit split because west surrey were running um a couple of cars and yas were running another so um not everybody seeing eye to eye all the time on on that and um, and also the Vauxhall um, Vectra, which was um, by then in its fifth season and had never really uh, got to the level of success that it should have done in the in the BTCC. So um, so the Ford didn't, although it was a fantastic, fantastically competitive season between the nine works cars we had in 2000 plus Matt Neal's independent Nissan. Um, the the competition in 1999, the depth of competition in 1999 was stronger. And the, the Nissan, I would say, was probably the ultimate super touring car. The only thing that I would say that counts against the Nissan is the cool factor. In a lot of people's eyes, it was still a Datsun. And, uh, and that is its only negative. 
I'd, I'd agree with you there, Tim, which is probably why uh, I went out and bought one uh, <laughs> a year or two after ILO's championship. <laughs> but is that offset? Is that offset by the fact that, and I think this is a big thing in its favour, given the Super Touring area, is that it is a car that a privateer won with. Matt Neal, that was such a hugely, hugely popular victory, the 250,000. You know, it's probably the closest that a Nissan has ever, or a touring car Nissan has ever got to being cool. Um, and I did ask Anthony Reid about this, because obviously he drove both the Primera and the Mondeo, and he said that, that he preferred the Primera as well. So um, I, I think I'm happy to put the Primera through um, to our final debate, even though I suspect it may struggle a bit against something like RS500 in terms of wow factor. Yeah, I put it um, as well, despite the fact that Anthony Reid himself didn't really help the cool factor of the car. <laughs> <laughs> so moving away from the, from the Super Touring uh, era, in fact, we're going to come right up to date. I don't, I'm not going to make any apologies for not having any of the BTC cars in there because... Okay, the Vauxhall Astra Coupe won everything, but the opposition was was low for a long time, and frankly, those cars were were not fa- not exciting to watch, in my opinion. Um, but I think the strength of British touring cars now is probably as good as it as it, is. it has been since the Super Touring era. Probably they are the two best years of the championship, um, and the car, the standout car, the NGTC era still competitive despite being a car that appeared right at the start of it in 2012 is the Honda Civic FK2, uh, which I think you may have mentioned this on a recent commentary, Tim. If Dynamics, the work team, was still running that FK2, uh, I think that that would still be a championship contender. In fact, I thought that when they moved to the FK8, if they'd had Gordon Shedden running a third FK2, they might still have won the championship against Colin Turkett and the BMW. So it's it's everything, despite all the shared parts, the Civic and uh, its Type R and original Civic form, champion with Jordan Shen and Andrew Jordan, even won races as an estate in uh, one season. Uh, it's it's got to be it's got to be the car of NGTC so far, hasn't it? Uh, absolutely, no question. You know, you've summed it all up very well. It's longevity and the fact it's still competitive is quite remarkable. And the other thing you've got to remember is it's had a variety of different engines in it over that period from Neil Brown um, uh, Honda engines through to Toka engines, which it currently runs. Um, and the fact that, you know, it, as I said, if Dynamics built a brand new shell of one of those and stuck a current Neil Brown engine in it, my God, how quick would that be? Um, but all the drivers that have jumped in it have said, what a beautifully balanced front-wheel drive car it is. Um, Sam Tordoff, who'd been trying to get his hands on one for a while, when he jumped into it, he said the car just turns in, rotates beautifully, takes a set in the corner. It's a fantastic car. Um, and it's, you know, it seems to have stood the test of time, despite the fact that there's a current... Um, uh, situation in BTCC where it appears that new cars are better than old cars and I give you the Ford Focus as an example I give you the the Hyundai new the Infinity they're all new build shells around the same components because everybody runs the same suspension components but new build cars seem to have been have taken a little bit of a, a head a march on the older cars except the fk2 that is still very competitive so it's an incredible car and, and never more so than at thruxton when i covered it that thruxton it would just like as you say about the balance and the flow it would it would be jordan shed and matt neil and they would absolutely thump the opposition in a, in a chance that's supposed to be so close 
And like the BMW 1 series, which I guess is the rear-wheel drive equivalent uh, in the NGTC era, compact, um, small, um, uh, competitive car, they were but both the Honda and the BMW were nobbled massively on turbo boost and straight line speed. I know it became a constant moan of various drivers, but the Honda at times was so slow through the speed traps and Shen in particular had to really work hard to make progress through the field. Um, so it, for me, it's a standard NGTC car. It's got 66 wins, actually, so it has surpassed the Ford Capri uh, now. That's not including the 2011 Civic, which was the old shape with the, the new NGTC engine even. So that's just literally the FK2 car. Um, but, but Marcus, does the fact that it shares so many parts with its opposition work against it or does it actually strengthen its case because it still managed to be so successful and outstanding i think we it's it's just a sign of the the times that we're living in really and um, yeah we we've been talking about some of the classic cars of the past um like the super touring cars and the group a cars before that and and we were making reference to their successes outside of britain as well um obviously we're now in a situation where uh the championships Pretty much run to their own sets of rules, um, apart from apart from TCR that is. But um, but we've got BTCC in this country. Uh, you know they they it is a completely indigenous uh, championship in the same way as say supercars is in is in Australia and even DTM in Germany. So you can write the rules to um, to have your own commonality of parts and um, and for that reason i would say the appeal is probably slightly less um and also we're not although the, the fk2 civic has been around for quite a long time now it's still not at the period where we can look at it uh through rose tinted spectacles like we are with the bmw m3 etc um i would say that when people like us in years to come look back on the NGTC era um, as well as Colin Turkington in a BMW 1 series or 3 series one of the uh, things people will talk about will be Gordon Shedden in a in an FKT Civic and um, you know, un unquestionably the one of the cl classiest driver and car combinations of the 21st century in in BTCC um, but at the moment yeah, it's just a little bit too current and a little bit too uh, too recent to uh, to include it in my. It's a bit top niche. It's a bit of a niche car, really. I was, I was just going to say the same thing. I think the thing that stops it getting through is if we were doing the greatest British touring car, I think it would be a candidate. If we're talking about greatest touring car, you know, it's never done anything outside of the UK. Um, so I think it, it's um, it's it's it represents a really strong era of British touring cars, but it, it doesn't make it through to the final reckoning, um, which means that we've got to the end of the candidates. I don't want a couple of honourable mentions, partly because I love Australian things. Um, so I want to mention the Holden LX Tirana from 78, 79, which I think is one of the coolest touring cars ever. Um, Peter Brock setting the fastest lap on the last lap at Bathurst is, is pretty cool. Great bit of footage, but didn't do anything outside of Australia. And our Australian friend, Andrew Van Leeuwen, picked out the Holden VF Commodore. Obviously, you could just put the Holden Commodore in, but really that covers all sorts of cars, but as being sort of the car of the, of the more recent generation, but again, limited to its, its home environment. So that leaves um, the Ford Capri, the BMW M3, the Ford RS500, the Audi A4 Quattro, and the Nissan Primera. 
is our last five. But before we debate those, are there any cars that you guys would like to throw in that you think I've think I've missed um, that we should uh, be throwing in against those five? Not really. I've, ironically, on, on the original uh, discussion email, the Mondeo wasn't on it. So that was the one I was going to bring up. But obviously, we've, uh, Marcus, sorry, has obviously added that one. So we've discussed it. <laughs> yeah, I, I decided, as we were discussing the Alpha and the Audi, I then thought, well, the Nissan and the Ford are an obvious, an obvious uh, combination as well. I mean, I, I do. Th we did sort of mention it earlier, but, you know, the Jaguar Mark II, sort of the first, uh, the first touring car, um, but I think that that falls down on that sort of lack of opposition, really. And um, there wasn't anything in the market that would be able to take that on until the Cortina and the and the the V8s arrived, and then it quickly it quickly vanished from from the scene. So um, I think that we are we are down to five, unless there's a trans there's the Trans Am Mustang. Um, but again, it's kind of we into sort of niche niche cars again here. Whereas I think the final five we've got have got international appeal for one reason or another. Yeah, I mean, the only only other possible one would be the Volvo Estate, um, perhaps as a, an entrant, I don't know. I think if you're doing sort of cool or eccentric cars, that would definitely that would definitely be in there. But again, doesn't kind of tick the success game changer box quite enough, I think, compared to the to the rivals that we've got. Agreed. Um, so we need to start losing these. Um, and on the basis that it only just nudged out the alpha to make it into the five, do we do it? And it's it's not cool, is it? It's not as cool as some of the other cars on this. Do, do we lose the A4 Quattro at this point? I think we do. I, I think, I'll, I mean, I think the next four will be difficult to separate, but I think you could lose the alpha, alpha Audi A4, yeah. Yeah. You happy with that, Marcus? What would you put forward as, an, as another one to another one to lose at this point? I think that uh, we want a bit of intermark variety. Um, so I want to I want to lose one Ford, and because I love the Capri so much, it's going to have to be the RS five hundred. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I, I agree with I like the idea of losing a losing a Ford, but I I find 550 brake horsepower passing F3000 car in a straight line rather cooler than a car that eventually lost to the Rover SD1. <laughs> I can't in, think uh, why. Sorry, <laughs> I can't think why. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would I would discount the Capri before the RS500 definitely. In, in that case, I'm happy to be outnumbered. <laughs> oh, are we going to lose the Audi A4 as well then? We've lost the Audi A4 and the Ford Capri. Okay. So um, I think for me, the the Nissan Primera represents um, the Super Touring as it's as it's yeah the greatest era of touring cars. But I'm not sure that it is in itself the greatest touring car. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm going to hang my colours on the mast and say the M3 I already have as my winner, um, despite probably people thinking I would pick the RS500. But the M3, as I said earlier, just had such phenomenal success all around the world, you know, including Asia Pacific region in all manner of races, sprints, endurance, everything. It was a cool car. You know, everybody, it was a real proper M car um, with the bulging arches, screaming engine. You know, for me, that car was, that is the greatest touring car. 
Well, as a BMW fan, I'm not really uh, normally going to argue too hard, but I will play devil's advocate because I'm an RS500 fan as well. That for me, the RS500 represents a period, just the end of that uh, period where motorsport was a bit outrageous, more power than grit. Before now, I think one of the problems that a lot of sort of um, armchair fans have with the sport is that it's all everyone's too good. The, tar- the cars are all too good. They corner on rails. You know, people think of Ronnie Peterson sideways in a load to 72. It looks harder than Lewis Hamilton going twice as fast on rails in his Mercedes. And the RS500 is right towards the end of, of those kind of outrageous, exciting uh, touring cars. I, I like it almost because it's so flawed. You know, centre of gravity was too high. Rubber was too thin. The M3 was definitely a better package yeah um so marcus yeah, the rs500 created heroes because people who saw it thought wow you know the drivers of those cars are we know they've got a fight on their hand there's something to respect in that we you know i can remember driving cars standing and, and watch as you came through the old woodcut corner and seeing people on the pit wall at Silverstone or coming over Deer's Leap at Alton Park and seeing people on the pit wall at, um, at Alton, literally take a step back in shock and awe. And, you know, a car that's capable of doing that is, has got a huge wow factor. And it just depends what you consider is the most fa- important factor in our debate, whether it's wow factor or success. Yeah, that's fair, Marcus. What does what what gets your vote? Um, yeah, it's a it's a really tough one, and and uh, I I would definitely um, I would definitely drop the Nissan Primera and leave it down to the RS five hundred versus the M three, which is which is quite telling that we've got two cars that competed against each other in the same era um, up for this. Now, um, my my thinking is that if we're uh, if we're talking about the greatest car from the british touring car championship i would probably say that it would have to be the rs 500 but if we're talking about the greatest car from worldwide touring car racing i think it would have to be the m3 because of the successes that it had in the world championship the european championship dtm etc also went on for a longer period of time um the car the m3 yes not as exciting to watch but uh, but as far as being a huge step forward in being a, a rear-wheel drive racing car that happened to be a touring car, it, it was uh, a real game-changing car, I think. And, um, and also, um, you, know, you can't really argue against a car that's uh, got the same name as the road to Thruxton. <laughs> 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 just off, so there we are. I mean, on the spectacular uh, factor, obviously Tim mentioned the two and a half liter DTM version as well. I mean, that that's that's a different kettle of fish to the two liter car that we'd have had here. Um, I don't think that would have given car, too much. Very much the same car, you know. And, and you know, I'd say anybody watch a DTM race with a two and a half liter Evo M3 lapping the Nordschleife and tell me that isn't spectacular. Absolutely. So there we go. I reckon it's, you know, Australian championships, DTM, World Touring Car Champs, European championships, British Touring Car Championships, four Spa 24 hours wins as well. So endure short races, long races. Oh, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go with the, the BMW E30 M3 as Autosport's uh, greatest touring car of all time. 
So there we are. Um, I'm sure lots of people will disagree. Hopefully, I mean, the M3's got a big following. It's launched a generation of, of super saloons and quick road cars, racing cars, GT cars. Um, it's absolutely one of those designs up there with the Porsche 911 in terms of impact and longevity. So I think it's a very worthy winner of this debate. Um, but please, but please do, listeners, let us know what you think. I'm sure you've, uh, have we missed anything? Do you agree with the M3? Um, but I'd like to finish by thanking Marcus Simmons for joining, uh, for, for joining us for this. And of course, uh, Tim Harvey. It's been a pleasure. Very enjoyable. I hope you've enjoyed it too. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Always enjoy a, a healthy debate. Absolutely. Thanks. So it's obviously a BMW M3 and Labatt's livery that's, uh, that's won this, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Should I admit at this point that I did have an E30 325 road car for a while as well. So I'm, I'm still very happy with, uh, with this result. But I had, I had those two as the two most likely to be debated at the end. So um, I ha I'm happy with either as the winner. And I think, I think that, that uh, Marcus is... British, the greatest British touring car is the RS500, but the greatest touring car overall is the M3. It's a very good diplomatic way of concluding it. So thank you very much. We will be back soon with another All Sport 70 uh, podcast where we'll be debating, uh, well, the next two on the list are the greatest indie cars and the greatest junior single seaters, where Marcus Simmons will definitely come into his own with that last one there. Um, but for now, that's all for the All Sport 70 podcast. Thank you very much and goodbye. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy, taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.